It's late summer in 1699 in the British colony of Boston, Massachusetts. Under a bright full moon, a guarded prison van races toward the dark center of the city. Within the carriage are four separate constables, one driver, and only one prisoner locked in the back. They are heading for Stone Prison, an intimidating fortress with three feet thick outer walls and iron spikes jutting out from the top. The carriage arrives at the front gate. The constables inform the guards that they are carrying a highly valuable prisoner named Kid. They are to lock this prisoner in solitary confinement until Lord Bellamont himself is ready to lead an interrogation. The guards nod and the carriage is admitted. Once inside, the constables remove tight, uncomfortable manacles and drag the protesting prisoner roughly through the jail. The prisoner is Mrs. Sarah Kidd, wife of Captain Kidd. She is unceremoniously thrown inside a damp cell for the night. Terrified, Sarah shivers on the hard bed. With the aid of just one candle and a shaft of moonlight entering through the barred windows, she tries to make sense of this dungeon around her. Prison clothes lie on the mattress. The material is reminiscent of a potato sack. She weeps for a while unable to settle. But the day has been exhausting, and soon she drifts off to sleep. In the morning, Sarah is given the sort of breakfast that she wouldn't allow her servants to feed to a dog. Then, in her prison clothes, she is led unwashed to a different room, where her inquisitor is waiting. As a woman of high society, Sarah Kidd has met the governor of New York and Massachusetts many times before. She is accustomed to seeing Lord Bellamont at grand balls or positioned at the end of extravagant dinner tables. Typically, his lordship is the epitome of welcoming charm. But not today. Today, he sits behind a small table in an austere room. His face is wearing an even more austere expression. He begins by telling Sarah what she already knows. Her husband, Captain William Kidd, has been arrested on a charge of piracy. Among other crimes, William is accused of raiding a ship called the Kedar Merchant, which technically belonged to the Mughal Empire. The Kedar merchant was said to be laden with a fortune in gold, silver, jewels, and many exotic treasures. Large portions of this plunder have not been recovered. He then asks her if she knows where the treasure is hidden. Sarah replies that she does not. Banging his fist on the table, Bellamont calls her a liar. He has heard many rumors that Sarah was given bags of gold to hide by her husband weeks earlier. Bellamont narrows his eyes. In a threatening tone, he repeats the question. Where is the treasure? 
Again, Sarah denies all knowledge. Over several hours, Bellamont aggressively interrogates her, but Sarah keeps pleading her innocence. Finally, Bellamont calls for the guards to take her back to her cell. Before she is led away, he warns her that she will be kept in stone prison until she becomes more cooperative. If found guilty of piracy, her husband will surely hang by the neck. With a cruel smile, Bellamont adds that if it transpires that Sarah has deceived him, she too might face the same fate. I'm Nathan Wiley, and today I'm stepping in for Tom Morton as the guest host for Real Pirates. The show that dives deep into the true story behind the world's most notorious buccaneers. Join us as we set sail under the black flag, alongside legendary figures such as Blackbeard, Henry Morgan, Charles Vane, Anne Bonny, and Mary Reed. We'll reveal how these marauding mariners rose to dominate the Seven Seas, the terror tactics they employed to overpower their prey, and what life was really like aboard their ships. Their reputations have swollen to legendary proportions, making it hard to separate fact from fiction. Who were they? Terrorists or freedom fighters? Cold-blooded killers or heroic underdogs? As it turns out, the truth is far stranger than fiction. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month, So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Just two years before his arrest, Captain Kidd was still being hailed as a national hero. The bold Scotsman had established himself as one of the most successful privateers of the period. Officially sanctioned by his monarch, King William of Orange, 
Kidd raided French trading ships during the Nine Years' War. In doing so, he made huge profits for the East India Company, his New York backers, and himself. But recently, the political waters around Kidd have changed. Now his actions are seen as a liability. And soon, he will have to defend himself in what becomes known as the most famous show trial of piracy's golden age. When news of Kidd's arrest in Boston eventually reaches England, it is met with joyous celebration. King William is promptly informed. He is said to be very pleased that the infamous fugitive has finally been apprehended. Credit for the capture is given to the New York governor, who set the trap for his former friend. But if Lord Bellamont thinks he is now in the good graces of the new Tory government, he is mistaken. His reputation as a man who has long encouraged, financed, and profited from adventurers like Captain Kidd still lingers. The East India Company continues to apply pressure to Bellamont, claiming that it's his responsibility to locate any plunder stolen from Mughal vessels. The Mughal Emperor is demanding to be compensated for what was stolen from the Kedar merchant, further straining relations between England and India. Keen to restore his tarnished reputation, Bellamont swears that he will recover as much of the treasure as possible. And, thanks to a letter Kidd wrote before his arrest, Bellamont already has a clue as to where some of it might be buried. Dr. Rebecca Simon is a historian and author of Why We Love Pirates, The Hunt for Captain Kidd and How He Changed Piracy Forever. One of the long-standing rumors is that Captain Kidd buried his goods from the Kedah merchants on Gardner's Island just off the coast of New York. Now, how does this rumor come about? After he was arrested, he had written letters to Lord Bellamont, who had financed this expedition, saying that he had all these goods and he had buried them on Gardner's Island worth hundreds of thousands of pounds and that he could have it all if you would let Kid go, basically. This was written in one single letter. And later, Bellamont said that the letter never even existed, but somehow people managed to discover it. The man who owned Gardner's Island is a man named John Gardner who said, yes, Kid was here. Kid did bury things here. But the reality is when people went, there was nothing actually there. Despite this failure, Bellamont makes a grand show of hunting for the treasure. He continues to hold Sarah Kidd prisoner while he ransacks her home and searches through her correspondence. Meanwhile, William Kidd languishes in prison. He refuses to answer Bellamont's questions about missing treasure. His hope is that the growing mystery as to the treasure's location might be the one thing that could prevent him from being executed. Dr. James Rankine is a historian and an authority on pirates. I'm going to go ahead and say no. I think that's a local legend. I think it's very appealing as probably one of those New York legends, right? I actually wonder to what extent kids' career inspired the Goonies a lot of the time, right? That, you know, there would be pirate treasure buried somewhere in New England or Connecticut or Gardner's Island, right? It's extremely appealing. It makes no sense commercially to bury your treasure on Gardner's Island. We, I mean, we know he went there. We know he unloaded 
valuables there. But Kid went to lots of places. I don't think Kid buried treasure anywhere because buried treasure is worthless if you can't unbury it. The reality is Kid did not actually really bury anything on Gardner's Island, but he was doing everything he could to try to get himself out of prison because he knew what would happen to him if he were found guilty of piracy. Now, even though Lord Bellamont did retract the statement that Kid had said he'd buried goods, it was too late. People found out about this and this kind of set off centuries of rumors and legends of buried treasure from Captain Kid. After months of holding her prisoner, Lord Bellamont is forced to release Sarah Kidd without charge. Despite his best efforts, Bellamont can find no evidence of any criminal collusion between her and her husband. And so, she is free to return to her children. William Kidd, however, will never see his family again. It is February 1700 in Boston Harbor. A British prison ship called The Advice arrives to transport Captain Kidd back to London. In order to demonstrate how seriously the Admiralty are taking piracy from now on, they have decreed that Kidd must face trial at the Old Bailey for maximum publicity. Traveling with 32 other prisoners, Kidd is confined to a cramped cabin steerage, one of the most freezing places on the ship. By the time the advice sails up the River Thames many months later, he's suffering from severe sickness as a result of the poor conditions during the crossing. He shivers and coughs constantly, even when the voyage is over. He has become so weak that he has to be physically carried off the boat. The marshal responsible for delivering him to London fears that he may die before he can even be interviewed by the Admiralty Board. But when Kidd eventually appears before the board at Whitehall Palace, his fighting spirit has not dimmed. In the paneled meeting room, he refutes any accusation that he acted as a pirate. In a frail, wheezing voice, Kidd reminds the board that he was officially sanctioned as a privateer by King William himself. He was given royal permission to raid French ships during wartime. Kidd insists that every ship he raided, including the Kedar merchant, carried French letters of marque, which legitimized those attacks. He then complains that he no longer has possession of these papers. They were unjustly seized from him by Lord Bellamont upon his arrest. Straining his throat to be heard, Kidd insists that his papers must be returned to him, including all the letters of Mark. His entire defense rests upon it. The gathered politicians listen attentively to Kidd's request. They assure him that if these documents do exist, he will be provided with them in good time. Meanwhile, Kidd will be taken to Newgate Prison where he'll receive medical attention ahead of his trial. It's May 8th, 1701, at the Old Bailey. As William Kidd's trial is about to commence, London's largest courthouse is filled to capacity. The courtroom is decorated with admiralty symbols, such as 
short silver oar lying in front of the judges. This denotes that the High Court of the Admiralty is in session. Dr. Oldish sits close to the council table and turns his head upwards to the public gallery. In all his years as a lawyer, he has never before seen such a rowdy crush of spectators. Oldish has not officially been named as Kidd's defense lawyer, yet. And he won't be until after the accused has pleaded guilty or not guilty. While Oldish waits for the prisoner to be let in, he considers his chances of securing Kidd's freedom. He knows that a not guilty verdict is decidedly unlikely. Kidd's infamy has grown even greater over the past year. The Tory government are so determined to make an example of him that they have arranged a public and very one-sided show trial. During Kidd's time of ill health in Newgate, Oldish heard a joke that sums up the government's attitude. It was said that the doctors were nursing Kidd back to life just so he could be given a death sentence. When the accused are eventually let in, the lawyer senses excitement from all around the court. There are several pirates on trial today, but Captain Kidd is easily the biggest celebrity. One by one, the accused step forward and are asked if they will plead guilty or not guilty. When it's Kidd's turn to plead, he does something that shocks everyone in the court, including Dr. Oldish. Refusing to raise his hand, Kidd belligerently refuses to plead at all. Judicial proceedings in the late 17th century were very different from what we would imagine a trial to be today. So I think it's just important to bear in mind that, for instance, you had to enter a plea before you could even really do anything else. And Kid arrives and he says, I don't want to plead because I don't have the documents that I need. I don't want to enter a plea. And there's a standoff, in fact. Uh, the first chunk of the trial is Kid basically refusing to enter a plea to the point where the court basically says, if you do not plead, we will judge you guilty. So enter a plea now. And I mean, Kid's main defense is he has these French passes, right? The captain of the Cater Merchant presented him with French passes. And so he, you know, took those documents at their word and assumed that this was a French vessel, England was at war with France, and therefore he acted appropriately in seizing this vessel and all of its cargo. The judges are outraged by what they see as an accused man stalling for time. After threatening him with an automatic guilty verdict, Kidd is finally forced to raise his hand and plead. Not guilty. Only then is Dr. Oldish appointed as Kidd's defense counsel, and the official charge of piracy can be read out by the clerk of the court. But to the surprise of many, there is a second charge read out against Kidd specifically. The second charge states that William Kidd, mariner, having been moved and seduced by the devil with a certain wooden bucket bound with an iron top, did kill and murder 
William Moore on the high sea. Kidd is flabbergasted. He fully expected to defend himself against piracy today. But until now, nobody had told him that he would also be on trial for murder. The other charge Kidd is being accused of is the murder of the crewman William Moore. And this is a big deal because technically the legal definition of piracy, robbery and murder on the high seas. Since he robbed the Cato merchant, that's one strike. And now murdering his crewman, this could technically be another strike in that definition. Kidd is claiming that it was an accident, that things just got very heated in an argument and that he had no intention of killing William Moore and that there was absolutely no ill will, no malice whatsoever. But unfortunately, many members of his crew who are going to speak at the trial are all going to basically speak against that. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Two witnesses are called forth to testify that Kid murdered the ship's gunner on the adventure galley. The first crewman is Joseph Palmer. As soon as Kidd sees Palmer, he knows he is in trouble. Palmer was William Moore's closest friend on the galley and openly loathed Kidd for killing him. Palmer describes to the court how Moore got into a fierce altercation with the captain. Moore was unarmed, but Kidd reached for the iron-bound bucket and viciously beat him with it. The prosecution asks Palmer if he believes that Kidd meant to murder William Moore. Palmer replies, yes. Quick to defend himself, Kidd interrupts the cross-examination. He swears that Moore was attempting to stage a mutiny, so his violence was justified. He claims that the crew wanted him to raid a ship flying Dutch colors, which went against his letters of mark. Palmer calmly looks toward Kidd for the first time since entering. It was the other way around, he refutes. Captain Kidd wanted to raid the Dutch ship, and Moore simply tried to stop him. Enraged, Kidd realizes he is being perjured against. It was Moore who wanted to attack the Dutch ship and Kidd had fought against such illegal action. But the worst is still to come. A second witness is called. Robert Brandenham was the ship's surgeon. His account of Moore's death is identical to Palmer's. Not only that, but he also describes Kidd's reaction to Moore's death on the following day. According to the surgeon, Kidd said, 
I do not care so much for the death of my gunner. I have friends in England who will bring me off for that. There are boos and jeers from the public gallery. Every member of the jury shakes their head in disgust at such arrogance. Kidd again accuses a witness of perjury, but his protests are drowned out by the noisy disapproval erupting around the courthouse. The jury are asked to leave the courtroom and consider this first charge of murder. Within an hour, they return with a unanimous verdict. Guilty. On hearing the dreaded word, Kidd slumps down into his seat, devastated. He knows a death sentence is now inevitable, regardless of whether or not he is found guilty of piracy. Kidd is in a really unfortunate situation overall during this trial, and much of it is because, for the most part, this trial is fixed against him. There's a lot more at stake than just simply Kidd's actions at sea here. It's not just that he violated his letter of mark. It's not just that he may or may not have accidentally killed a crew member. It's the fact that Britain has had a very difficult relationship with the Mughal Emperor and the East India Company, trying to make sure they can maintain their funds, they can maintain their trading relationship and keep their economy going. And with Kidd going in and robbing the wrong ship and causing trouble in the East Indies just a couple of years after the British pirate Henry Avery had done, England is in a bind here because they have to prove to the Mughal emperor that Britain cannot and will not be outsmarted by yet another pirate. So Britain has to put all of its energy and resources, not just into capturing Kidd and putting him on trial, they have to make a huge show of it. So. The manhunt after Kidd is being pretty much documented live as it's happening in newspapers and government reports. He's put on a very public trial that people are allowed to attend. There's newspaper reports about it. People knew in advance when it was going to be held, where it was going to be held. They had to make this as showy as possible. And they also had to make Kidd the ultimate example of what would happen to any pirate who threatened not just other ships, but threatened the growing British empire as it stood. So for Kidd, not only did his actions happen at the wrong place, they were also definitely happening at the wrong time. The perfect time for the British, the worst time for himself. With his execution now assured, Kidd continues to fight for his good name. After all, there is still a second charge of piracy against which he must defend himself. His lawyer reasserts Kidd's claim that he is not a pirate but instead a patriotic and highly successful privateer whose raids made fortunes for his country. Again, it is claimed that Kidd would be able to prove this if only he had access to documentation taken from him on arrest. Unfortunately, for some reason the French passes and letters of Mark cannot be produced for the trial. Despite having spent over a year requesting to have his papers presented, they never appear. It is not explained why such crucial evidence is withheld from the courtroom. We don't know exactly what happened to those letter of Mark, but what we do know is they do exist because they are currently being held at the National Archives in Kew in West London. Even if he had the French passes, however, it seems unlikely that they would have saved him because by this point, it was extremely important that a major 
prominent officer from an English vessel who had been involved directly in piracy had to pay some sort of price for this activity in order to satisfy representatives of the Mughal government. And Kidd happened to be the person who was at that moment both in custody and also by far the most prominent exemplar of this problem. Two days after it began, Captain Kidd's trial reaches its inevitable conclusion. Kidd is found guilty on charges of both murder and piracy. The judge delivers his sentence. Captain William Kidd, you will be transported to the execution dock where you will hang. What say you? His right hand raised. Kidd gives a typically defiant answer. I have nothing to say except I have been sworn against by perjured and wicked people. Is he a scapegoat? I hesitate to use that term because that would imply that he was wholly innocent. Kid was not innocent. But at the same time, I think he had a good argument to make that he occupied some sort of gray area, right? Kid had done things that were not that different from other captains who would be granted pardons or reprieves or who would be acquitted. So in some ways, I think Kidd is quite justified in feeling aggrieved that he was specifically targeted. It's May 23rd, 1701, on Wapping High Street, East London. Hundreds of people line the street to watch Captain Kidd as he is transported to his place of execution, a scaffold on the bank of the Thames. They cackle and jeer as a procession of horse-drawn carts trundle past. Children throw rotten vegetables at him, while publicans offer him final bottles of liquor as an act of kindness. On the back of his cart, Kid is rip-roaringly drunk. He swigs from yet another bottle of gin and curses the names of those who have betrayed him. By the time the procession reaches execution dock, Kid can barely stand. The guards grab him by the arms to drag him off the cart, only for him to fall onto the ground. A guard hoists him back up Kid spits in his face. Kid is then mercilessly dragged toward the gibbet. Waiting for him is a pastor familiar to him from Newgate. Before he is executed, Kid is allowed a final speech. The pastor implores him to use this opportunity to confess his sins before God. But Instead, Kid launches into a bitter tirade against his enemies. Again, he claims that he has been perjured against and betrayed by men who claimed to be his friends. He loudly declares that his only regret is leaving his wife and children. As soon as he finishes speaking, 
the hangman steps forward. Once his bonds have been secured tight, Kid is led up a ladder to the scaffold and a noose is placed around his neck. With a sickening lurch, he feels the platform underneath his feet disappear. But to the shock of the crowd, the noose snaps. Instead of hanging, Kid instead thumps down onto the wet riverbank below, still alive. Kid lies stunned as the rising tide splashes his face. He spits the foul water out of his mouth and, for a delirious moment, he wonders if he has evaded death. But it proves to be a momentary reprieve. The executioners grab hold of Kid and drag him back up the scaffold. The hangman then secures a much stronger rope and tries again. On this second attempt, his death is instantaneous. Soon afterwards, his body is placed inside a gibbet cage made of iron. He is then hung over the River Thames and left to rot for three long years. It is a warning against other pirates. And so ends the tumultuous life of Captain Kidd. Although he never knew it, Kidd did manage to outlive his treacherous friend, Lord Bellamont, who had died of gout two months earlier. Throughout his controversial career at sea, Kidd always insisted he was never a pirate. And yet, by the time of his execution, his name had already become synonymous with what we now think of as the Golden Age of Piracy. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. The day after his execution, the transcript for his trial was published, and it was so widely purchased that they had to reprint it within just a day because it was selling out absolutely everywhere. The trial transcript was published verbatim. Everybody was clamoring to read it. If they couldn't read it, then they could go to a place like a tavern or a public house where someone else might read it aloud. He became a huge talking point throughout London. And not only that, soon afterwards, like throughout the 18th century, 
a lot of songs and ballads and all kinds of things are being written about Kid to very familiar tunes that people could learn how to sing and memorize. And these have become very popular and are sung in taverns and cities all over the British Atlantic world. So Kid, by the time, from pretty much the day he's executed onward, he has become a celebrity, not just for people who have this fascination with pirates or have heard of pirates, but even amongst other pirates. Other pirates will see him as kind of an example of what the British do to pirates. He's going to have this celebrity for decades, if not centuries to come. In some ways, I think Kidd becomes famous by default. Because he's executed, his name is out there. And there are plenty of other pirates in the 1690s from Avery and Kidd. But they were either successful in the sense that they were not well-known, right? And being a pirate who isn't well-known is actually a pretty good strategy, in my opinion. Or they were successful in the sense that they were not executed. And if you're not executed, it doesn't go into the newspapers. It doesn't enter into the public consciousness in the same way. So a lot like rock stars and gunfighters, if pirates die, they are much more likely to become legends. When Sarah Kidd is informed that her third husband has been executed, she observes a brief but appropriate period of mourning. Then, very quickly, she moves on with her life. Since being released from Lord Bellamont's clutches, Sarah has had a difficult time. Shunned by the polite society she once belonged to, she has had to fight many legal battles to regain property that was seized during her incarceration. In 1703, Sarah marries for the fourth time and lives quietly in New York. When husband number four dies, she opens a tavern and becomes a successful businesswoman. But over the years, it is widely gossiped that Sarah has always known where Captain Kidd hid his now legendary treasure. As a result, she remains under continual suspicion until her death in 1744. Despite living an otherwise blameless life well into her 70s, Sarah never escapes the dark shadow cast by her most notorious husband. There's a few reasons why Captain Kidd has become one of the most famous pirates of all time. The number one reason is most likely because of rumors of buried treasure. The idea that Kidd possibly buried hundreds of thousands of pounds in 18th century currency has become absolute fascination for people over the next several centuries. People are still looking for his buried treasure. As recently as 2015, it was thought that they found the adventure galley sunk off the coast of Madagascar, which of course ended up being a hoax. There was even a failed expedition going into the South China Seas in the 1950s, going after his buried treasure. And even Robert Louis Stevenson was really captured by this idea, and he used the idea of buried treasure as the main plot point for the novel Treasure Island, which is actually where we get every single one of our pop culture ideas about pirates. And it's all thanks to Captain Kidd here. Next week on Real Pirates... We leave the Red Sea men of the late 1600s and pick up the sorry tale of their successors and the peak of the 18th century pirate outbreak. It's 1718, 
Nassau has been reclaimed by the British authorities and the pirates of the Caribbean are on the run. But a new era of piracy is dawning. Though many slip quietly back into civilization, some hardened villains still seek their fortune under the banner of King Death, the Jolly Roger. Men like Captain Edward England. However, England will soon discover that this new era has new rules. Against a rising tide of terror, success is sometimes just staying afloat. Find out next week on Real Pirates. Real Pirates is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser, executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes, developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast, produced by McAllister Bexon, written by James Benmore, sound supervisor Tom Pink, edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer, sound design by Matthias Torres Soleil, mixed and mastered by Cody Reynolds Shaw, music by Oliver Baines, and Dory McCauley. 